Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Uchiyama Roshi, Okamura's teacher in Japan, had once written as the fourth of seven points of practice Base your life on vow and root it deeply. I had puzzled over this for years, and it gradually opened up for me roughly as follows. A human character or a human life is inherently as formless as a lump of wet clay. Now, if you give someone a lump of wet clay, everyone likes clay. He is generally inclined to make something grand of it, but might approach this task in either of two ways, either delighting in the possibilities or delighting in a realization. To delight in possibilities is to balk before any major decision, lest it be irreversible. Much like the hesitant dissertation scholar, this afflicted person will play with the clay experiment with flattening part of it, maybe rolling it into a snake, then squishing it back into the blob, all in dread of a real commitment. He will preserve many prospects of something grand all at once, of a bust of Beethoven, of a teapot, of a mask, of a ceramic hippopotamus, and of the limitless other possibilities arrayed before him, but will bring nothing to fruition. This is the way of doubt, of hesitation, in the face of the unknown. To delight in a realization requires a bold decision, a plunge, a, I'll make a ceramic dragon that holds toothpaste and toothbrushes in its back and a bar of soap in its mouth. All other options close immediately, but the creative facilities actively engage in bringing something real to fruition. This is the way of resolve, the way of faith, a kind of faith that stands firm in the face of the unknown. Our lives, our characters can be treated the same way. The bold ones will resolve. This will be the shape of my life. Then they act according to that resolve. This is vow. Vow is our only opportunity to shape our lives deliberately and substantially into something grand. Since this is what Buddhism asks of us, basing our lives on vow and rooting it deeply is integral to the path. The odd thing is I had somehow always known this. I had that same bold resolve in my bones from my earliest days. Looking back, I saw that whatever had been meaningful in my life was so because I had met it with this bold resolve, my studies, my research, and now my Buddhist practice. However, I had refused to generalize to the rest of my life, to my personal habits, 
to my relationships to family, to my romantic affairs, all of which I had treated as things I could play with non-committally, to roll and squish then absorb back into the formless blog. My marriage certainly provided the most egregious example in my experience of ongoing delight in possibilities. When this koan opened up to me, I realized I was going to base every aspect of my life on vow and try my darndest, sometimes even successfully, to root it deeply. Shortly after the publication of his book, At Hell's Gate, this would have been 2006, I learned that Claude Anchin Thomas, a Zen priest and former soldier, would be in Austin on a book tour. I was curious because he was a student of Bernie Glassman, very much a social activist and purported to live as a mendicant monk. Moreover, his book about his long and torturous road from homeless shell-shocked Vietnam War veteran to pure and pristine Zen priest fascinated me. Although his book tour provided him with a well-earned vacation, he was normally on pilgrimage by foot, having walked a few times across the United States from coast to coast, and even from Europe to Vietnam, calculating that staying with us would certainly have more appeal to someone of his background than staying at the Hyatt. I contacted Ashin with Barbara's permission to invite him to stay with us at the Zen Center for a few days, and I was delighted when he accepted. With his assent, I also scheduled a Saturday Dharma talk for him at AZC, and at his suggestion, a potluck for Buddhist Vietnam War veterans the following afternoon. Anchin always wore robes. In particular, he was never without the long-sleeved priest's karomo along with a rakasu, except on formal occasions when the okasa replaced the rakasu. He also would never touch money. I was aware that these practices were traditional in Asia outside of Japan, while Zen priests in Japan or America would wear flip-flops, shorts, and sunglasses on the beach, pullovers on the subway, whatever lay clothing they wanted outside of formal settings. I asked Anchin about this. The reason, he said, that Zen priests wear priest clothing only half of the time is that they are priests only half of the time. This to me was a strong indictment. I had once of my own accord decided, you ordain as a priest when you realize that Buddhist practice is your life. In any case, it certainly seemed to me to fall far short of my criterion. It also raised questions for me about how well or poorly I satisfied my own criterion. If Anshin's street-ragged Karomo contrasted at AZC unfavorably with our freshly pressed ones, his appearance on the street was particularly daring. 
I took him out to do some tourist things one afternoon, particularly to visit the Texas state capitol, paying his bus fare so that he would not have to touch the quarters. As he himself described it, he looked to others like a bald man in a dress, but he did not seem to care one snippet. Being a Zen priest all the time was quite daring, and he was bold enough to represent that fully in his physical appearance. Besides, as he put it, if people are curious, they can ask. Unchin also represented for me the way in which one engages in the world as a priest, that is, in which one never leaves Buddhist practice to go do something else, but makes whatever one does a manifestation of the Dharma. He provided the perfect example of a life resolved in bearing witness. Subsequently, I would hear other priests, rather predictably in retrospect, refer to Anshin as arrogant, but I was pretty darned impressed with the high standards he held to. Here was a man who lived by vow and rooted it deeply. With time, Barbara asked me to begin sewing brown robes. In the Soto Zen tradition, a priest in training wears black robes upon ordination and continues to wear black robes after serving as Shusou and having been authorized to begin teaching. At some point, however, the priest's teacher, after years of almost daily contact, decides that the priest has acquired her own understanding. Formally, this manifests as Dharma transmission. Dharma transmission is performed in a private ceremony between teacher and student. No one else is allowed to be present. There would be no invitations, no audience. Barbara would say some words. I would reply. She would hand me the brown robes that she had just asked me to sew, and I would be an independent teacher in the Soto Zen tradition, authorized to wear those brown robes and to ordain and train priests on my own. Barbara foresaw my Dharma transmission happening in the spring of 2010. This gave me two years from the time I began to sew the brown robes. Aside from sewing the robes, I was to study some esoteric texts and copy another text by hand into a notebook Barbara had given me as I continued my priestly life and practice. I sewed daily. As I sewed, I often listened to a series of lectures on monastic life that I had downloaded from Venerable Tupton Chodron's website. She was a Western nun who had become well-known for a couple of very popular books. But to me, she was particularly known as a pioneer and champion of American monasticism. One day, Venerable Tubton Chodron came to give a talk at the University of Texas, where she attracted a large audience. Someone involved in her arrangements had asked me if the Venerable might come to AZC to rest in the serenity of the Zen Center during her downtime between a couple of minor events that had also been scheduled during the day. Of course, I had been delighted with the request. 
but had asked in return if I might be able to intrude on her downtime to speak with her while she was here. Venerable Children was the first in a series of Western monastics that I sought out, at least Western monastics that were not Zen priests. Another was Venerable Hung Shur, the American abbot of the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, whom I visited on one of my trips home to California. He had ordained under Taiwanese master Hua, also in the 1970s, spoke fluent Chinese, and followed a number of peculiar austerities, like never lying down to sleep. Bhante Suhita Dharma was the first black American monk, having been ordained in the three major branches of Buddhism for ten years each, and worked at the headquarters of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in Berkeley, where I visited him. Each of these monastics was like a breath of fresh air. In fact, air was almost all I could discern, not a person in the normal sense, which would entail a personal agenda and an identity. Instead, what I witnessed was the observance of deeply rooted vows, an undertone of kindness, a bit of curiosity about me, and a few other insubstantial strokes that might only roughly outline a person in the normal sense. Closer to home, I met Reverend Hui Young, an American at Jade Temple in Houston, and Bhante Kasapa, an American monk at a Vietnamese Theravada tradition in Port Arthur, Texas. I met Bhante Kasapa when he was headed inland to escape a devastating hurricane and sought shelter at the Zen Center in Austin. I also met the Chinese abbot of Jade Temple, Reverend Hung Yi, and asked him what opportunities there might be for studying Winia with a good teacher. Should I ordain as a bhikshu? Tellingly, he directed me to a Chinese-Malaysian Theravada monk, Venerable Katapunyo, who is living out at their incipient rural retreat center, the American Bodhi Center in the country. It happened that as I was staying at the Jade Temple, Venerable Katapunyo had also come into town because he had been bitten on the hand by a poisonous snake while watering flowers and shrubs at night at ABC and had come into Houston for a doctor's care. His hand was swollen to the size of a foot, so we exchanged but few words on that occasion, but later, Venerable Hui Yong and I together drove to and spent a few days at ABC with Venerable Katapunyo, who impressed me enormously. Loved talking about the Winia, clearly had a strong personal discipline recommended some books, which I would later procure and read, and was continuing to water in the evening darkness in the country. The American Bodhi Center was beautiful and serene, 500 acres of forest. Once before making a visit to California to visit my family, I made arrangements to stay 
for four days at Abayagiri Monastery in Mendocino County in Northern California. My dad drove me up there many, many miles. On the way, we stopped to visit the City of 10,000 Buddhas, the monastery founded by Master Hua in the Chinese tradition where Venerable Hung Shur had trained. Under Master Hua, the City of 10,000 Buddhas had donated the bulk of the land on which Abayagiri had been built. My visit to Abayagiri was a watershed in my Buddhist life. Eleven monks lived there, Western except for one westernized Vietnamese. The co-abbots, Ajans Pasano and Amaro, were Canadian and British, respectively. Both about my age, both very senior, in the Zen-like Ajahn Chah Ajahn Sumedho school of Thai Theravada. I lived in a cabinet by a giri, joined the monks for work periods and for an hour and a half of meditation and chanting early morning and again late evening. Monastic discipline had no point of laxity at Abayagiri. I talked with most of the monks over the four days at Abayagiri and heard their stories. One monk had been a frequent visitor to Abayagiri while he was working on his Ph.D. in physics at Berkeley and had moved in and ordained within a few days of completing his Ph.D. Pure monastics are a breed apart. Zen priests tended to develop certain unmistakable qualities of mind, a degree of inner strength that withstands life's outrageous fortunes. Most Zen teachers will require this development in their transmitted Dharma heirs, by which time they are like mountains withstanding the elements, while most people around them are like eroding hillsides and bluffs. Many of the pure monastics I have met, on the other hand, are like the sky itself, rootless. Outrageous fortune barely touches nor concerns them. They have liberation in their fiber. Each of the people I have mentioned here possessed a humility, a sense of resolve and purpose, a degree of serenity, a distance from entanglement in the affairs of the dusty world, and an utter joy in life uncommon even in Buddhist circles. These were people living the Buddha's purest way without compromise. I found myself uplifted through the roof during each monastic encounter. My tipping point came at Abayagiri. While I was there, I finally irrevocably decided, this will be the shape of my life. A few days later, I was at the San Francisco Zen Center and asked to see Kosho, one of my favorite teachers, when I was at Tassajara for Dokusan. I performed three prostrations in his room, assumed the characteristic zazen posture facing him, settled in, and, when his eyes communicated that he was ready to listen, I spoke. I've decided to ordain as a Theravada monk. A long, pregnant pause ensued. Then he answered, I'm so glad to hear you say that. 
with what seemed to me the intonation of, It's about time. Kosho talked of his long-time monastic aspirations. He had thought about the same step at one time, but in the end had decided not to make a formal change in his ordination status. He had finally found the level of contentment at the San Francisco Zen Center that he could live with. Soon, back in Austin, I visited Ashin Ariadama at the Burmese temple to talk about my decision to ordain in the Theravada tradition. Without any pause at all, he said, I'll ordain you. Then he gave me three options. We're going to have an ordination in November for a Vietnamese monk. You can ordain with him. Otherwise, we can schedule an ordination at a future time. Or you can come to Myanmar to ordain. There will be a pilgrimage to Myanmar from the United States in February. That would be 2009. I am going, and Wendy is going, and a couple of other monks are going for six weeks. You can come along and ordain there, and I suggest that you stay on in Myanmar for a while, maybe a year.